We're going to be again in the book of James tonight. James chapter 1. Tonight, this um, message is called The Generous, Unchanging God. The Generous, Unchanging God. And my sermon in a sentence tonight is this. Trust in the generous, unchanging God who saved you. Trust in the generous, unsaving God who saved uh, you. We have a, a good... God. We have a generous God. He has given to all of us more than we could possibly deserve. And and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But before we begin, let's pray together one more time. Lord, we thank you, Lord. Uh, This season, we often uh, think about gifts, Lord. And we give gifts to one another. But the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. In whom uh, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything, Lord, is from you. And the greatest gift, Lord, that has ever been given and that could ever be received is the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus And it's him that we worship, and it's him that we exalt, Lord, this Christmas season. And we pray now that you would teach us, Lord, a little more deeply about how you are the generous, unchanging God. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So our text today is going to be James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. So, if you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The word of God. You may be seated. So as I said before, the sermon in a sentence tonight is this. Trust in the generous, unchanging God who saved you. So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the passage tonight and, and just kind of pull from our sermon in a sentence uh, and just kind of show uh, how it is, is there from the text. So first there in verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved uh, brothers. So what is, what's James talking about being deceived? So if you remember last time, and you could, you could look there in the verses just prior to verse 16, he's talking about um, what temptation is, what trial is, uh, how God cannot tempt us, but we're tempted by our own desire. And we talked about that at length last time. And then, following verse 16, in the, in the rest of our text, 
He talks about how every good and perfect gift comes from above, down from the Father of heavenly lights. And so uh, what's happening here is that uh, there has, there's, there's some connection uh, going on here. He warns, he warns the, the, the Jews that he's writing to, the dispersed Jews that he's writing to, to not be uh, deceived. He obviously believes, it's a command there, so he obviously believes that there is the potential, there's the, uh, there's the possibility of them being uh, deceived, of them falling into uh, deception and into serious temptation, either concerning uh, how sin comes to fruition in their life, concerning the goodness of God. We can easily be deceived concerning those things. And if you think about it, um, uh, one way to think about sin is that all sin, in essence, is unbelief. All sin uh, is is unbelief. Um, and particularly in the context of our passage today, we could categorize all sin as unbelief in the goodness and the generosity of God. That's one way that we can think about sin. And that's what I think James is talking about in this context when he says, do not be deceived. Deceived into not believing that God is good and generous and unchanging. So just let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say um, we, you know, we have an angry outburst about something, a sinful, sinfully angry outburst. Well, usually when that happens, we have an angry outburst when we expected or felt like we deserved something that we didn't get. That's when we have angry outbursts, right? But what is happening in that moment when we have that angry outburst? Well, we were expecting or believed that we were deserving something that we didn't get. And what, what is that? It is, a, it is a case of unbelief. In that moment, you are disbelieving that God has been good to you. In that moment, you are unbelieving concerning the fact that God has... You don't believe that God is being generous to you at that very moment. And so you're angry about something. It's unbelief. Just another example, just a general example, is just in, in temptation. Any type of temptation that we face. Something that we know is not right, know ought not to be done, and let it, let, yet it allures us because, as we talked about last time, because of our sinful desires. We have sin natures that, that, that uh, draw us toward sin. But when we give in to that sin, as we talked about last time, and it gives it, it conceives and gives birth, the, the desire conceives and gives birth to sin. What is happening there again is unbelief. It's unbelief that God knows better than we do. <laughs> it's unbelief in God, in the goodness and generous of God, because it, it believes the lie that this sin in this moment is going to give me more joy than God has promised me forever. It's, a, it's unbelief. It's being deceived and thus disbelieving the goodness of God in that moment, as if this sin could bring you more lasting and pure and holy joy and pleasure than God can forever. It's a lie. So James says, do not be deceived. It's a command. Do not be deceived. Take pains so that you don't believe the lie, that you don't believe the lies, that you're not deceived. And now would probably be a good time as any to think about what, what the deceivers 
in the world are? What, what, type, what, uh, what is it that deceives us, that causes us to disbelieve God? There's three things that the Bible teaches. <coughs> uh, and we're familiar with all of them. Three sources of deception. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Interestingly, all three of these are in this famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's look at those. The world, the flesh, and the devil. First, there's the world. In this passage that we just read, in Ephesians 2.2, it says that before our conversion, we were following the course of the world. The course of the world. The world is an incredible source of temptation. Right? We all, you know, there, we, when, you're in high, when you're in school, for example, we, all, we talk about things like peer pressure. There's the pressure that, that, that it's an it's, uh, it's unseen but very real pressure that is exerted on people, especially in school, but even largely now in the broader school and social media and the news outlets and stuff like that. E- very easily, people can bring pressure to bear on you if your beliefs and behaviors don't line up with theirs. And if you're, and if you're abstaining from certain things that people, that, people, that people don't understand why you're abstaining from them, and it seems to them that you're some kind of holy roller judgmental person because you don't engage in the same sin that they do, which the Bible said would happen, they would malign us for that, they can exert great pressure on you. Not just that, but it's very subtle. The world deceives us in incredibly subtle ways from ads to books to news media outlets to, uh, to just uh, otherwise seemingly innocuous television shows. Everything is conveying a message if you listen closely enough. And we, and we as Christians have to be discerning enough when we absorb these things because if we don't, if we're not intentionally discerning, we'll just absorb it with the rest of the world. We have to be intentionally discerning to think about what message am I being told? And is that message true? We have to think about those things. And and in one way that's even deceptive is just is just the emphases things the uh, the emphases that the world gives certain things. And we talked about that this morning. How God, uh, how God moved the heart of the emperor to, to, to make a census of the whole Roman world. And that, was the, that, was, that, would have been on the, that would have been on all the news media outlets. But that wasn't what's important to God. What was important to God is getting Mary to Bethlehem. Right? The emphases, the, what other people view as important... It allures us to put our, to place our understanding of importance and value on that same thing. That's why, for example, that's why, for example, in our parenting, one of the greatest the, the one of the greatest ways to the most important ways, <laughs> the most significant way you'll parent your children 
It's for just, it's for just you to be a faithful Christian. Why? Because the children, you don't even have to tell them. They will see what you value and value it the same. If you treasure Christ little at home, don't be surprised when your kids treasure Christ little. But if you treasure Christ much, then they will see the value that you assign to him. And they'll say, wow, he's valuable. Right? There's all, kind of, all these things, the deception of the world Lies, lies, lies. That's why we have to continually fill our mind with truth. And that brings us to the next one. The world and the flesh. Paul says that we all once lived, all of us, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see, the world tempts you from the outside, but the flesh tempts you from the inside. The world is very fleshly, Therefore, it knows precisely how to appeal to your flesh. That's why, that's why sin, many things that would have seemed unbelievable 20 years ago, that to be mainstream and made normative in culture, are now here. They're now upon us. Why? Because, here's why. Because we all have sin natures. The world, therefore, can easily appeal to sin nature and a person without the spirit who's not discerning when the world says, well, it's fine because it's natural. It feels natural to you. If you're not discerning without the spirit, you'll say, you know what? They're right. It does feel natural. I do deserve that. I am that way. I do need that. I must be with this person. And what... and. The world deceives you through their lies, but it's that it's your the fleshly nature inside of us that responds to that with, hey, you're right. You're right. That's why if the main words that we listen to are those of the world, we ought not be surprised when we're deceived. We ought not be surprised when we're deceived. And that's why this is so so important. Paul, in another place, he commands, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. So he says, put to death what is earthly in you. Jesus, very pointedly, he said, he who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When a person becomes a Christian, a very real death has to take place. Your old self must die so your new self can live. Right? How do you kill your old self? You starve it. You starve it. If you feed it, if you feed it, you feed your flesh, fleshly thoughts, fleshly desires, fleshly uh, TV and movies and, and, and uh, uh, radio and music. It sounds so, you know, a prude preacher, okay? You know, burning your, burning your, uh, your uh, disc and it sounds like the devil's hissing at you, right? But I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. There's a, re- we don't, I don't think the world has understood this better than we do. That, that things that we listen to and things that we absorb affect us subtly in ways that we don't understand. Why do you think that they target all these ads towards kids? With these powerful, subtle messages, teaching them to find their identity in certain things. The world, 
Jesus said, Jesus said the sons of the earth are more shrewd than the sons of heaven sometimes. We got to catch up, folks. We got to learn that what we absorb affects us. And, but if we starve those things, if we starve our flesh, however, and feed our soul with, with righteousness, if we obey Paul's command when he says whatever is true and lovely and peaceable and etc., think about these things, Philippians 4. Think about them. If we, if we saturate our mind with God's word, if we throw ourselves in the community of his people, and spend time to one another and have deep fellowship with one another and, and talk with one and have spiritual conversation with one another and walk this walk of faith together with one another, speaking truth into, other, in, into one another's lives, we can and will have victory over the flesh. We must fight the deception of the world in the flesh. God is good. He's generous. He's not trying to keep something from us. In our moments of clarity, we know that. But in the hour of temptation and trial, we forget it. That's why we need to put steel in our hearts and our spines by the word of God. So the world, world the flesh, and number three, the devil. Paul says that we're fo- we once followed the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to the devil. Bible calls the devil a deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. He went up to Eve and he said, you won't surely die. God told them what? The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The devil says, you won't surely die. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Every moment of every day, we are bombarded from the, from the world. We are bombarded from our flesh. We are bombarded from the devil with lies. The question is, is will, are, we, are we rooted enough in the truth and saturated enough in the truth to know a lie when we hear it? That's the key. Because that's the thing. If we're not looking for it, if we're not expecting it, if, we, if we're not deeply saturated enough in the truth of God's word, it's a lot easier to be deceived. But if we have done these things, and if we, have, and if we remember that God is a good and generous God, we won't be deceived. So, number one here is trust. Trust in the generous, unchanging God who saved you. Trust in Him. Next thing I want to look at is this. Trust in the generous, unchanging God. Trust in the generous, unchanging God. In, in verse 17 there, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We serve a, a good God. We serve a generous God. God is generous. Think about it. He owns everything. Everything belongs to him. And think about how free he is with his stuff. He has distributed it generously to all of us. Jesus put it this way in Luke 11. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Bible says that God is a good and he's a generous father. Unfortunately, in our day, because so many fathers haven't fulfilled their role as the reflection of God as he's intended to be, many people have a very poor picture of what it, of what it means for God to be father, if they have a picture at all. But in that case, we just must look to God as our father. And God is a good and generous father. And, it's, it's, and Jesus is appealing to that because he is assuming to a large degree that people understood what it means by God is a good and generous father. A father would never willingly withhold something that he knows his, father, his children need. And that's how God is. God won't do that. And not only does a good father do that, but also oftentimes a good father will often of his own free will generously lavish on his children things he knows they don't need. Can I get a witness? Because he's a good, generous father. And not only, but he's also a good and wise and generous father, which also means that he wants to teach his children sometimes the hard lessons of life that you need to learn. That you can't always get by just receiving, receiving, receiving. And so he teaches us certain things and allows us to endure certain things, to teach us about him, to teach us to trust him. This is how God works because he is a good and wise father. And James says every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from him. It's a gift directly from heaven. Paul expresses it this way. He says, as for the rich... In this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything that has been given to us is from God. Any good and perfect thing that we have ever enjoyed comes from God. And this is important to remember, because it can be tempting sometimes to, even implicitly, we might not voice it, but it can be tempting we like to take credit. We like to take credit. We say, well, I work for that. And in a sense, that's true, and good work ethic is good, and there are consequences for not having good work ethic, and the Bible talks about that. But at the same time, it's still false to say, well, I work for that. It's true, you did, but it's still a gift from God. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Think about it. If you, think, if you really think about it, you can see it. Did you choose to be born in America? It's a gift. The opportunities that you had to get the job that you had, it's a gift. The health that you have to be able to wake up and go to work, is a gift. Not everybody has that. So you see then that everything, even if you work for it, it's a gift from God. Everything is a gift from God. That we should thank him for every nickel, every dime, every loved one, every relationship, every opportunity, every meal, every heartbeat, every breath. Every time you wake up in the morning is an undeserved gift from a generous God. 
If we thanked God as much as we complained, we'd have revival. We'd have revival. One final verse concerning God's generosity. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You want to talk about the goodness and the generosity of God? This is the goodness and generosity of God. There are people who woke up this morning and blasphemed God. And God woke them up. And God put food on their table. And God gave them family and relationships to enjoy. And God lavished gift upon gift upon them to a God they don't even acknowledge. God is a generous God. Who of us would do that? Who of us would act like that? But that's how God is. And because God is like that, this is why Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do good for those who don't do good to you. Why? Because that's what God does. That's what God did for us. God did good. The Bible says that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. If God wasn't good to his enemies, nobody could be saved. Because we were all one time enemies of God. But because he is a good and generous God, he gives and he saves. And so James is saying, trust in the generous and unchanging God. Trust in him and you have the power to be generous like him. So we trust in the generous God. We also trust in the generous, unchanging God. The generous, unchanging God. James says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So in the context here, James calls... God, the Father of lights. Almost certainly he's referring to uh, the, the creation. He created the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. And we know this because this, uh, these, this Father of lights, he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Those words there that are being translated for us are words that are used in other ancient Greek literature to refer to astronomical phenomena. <laughs> and, what, and what James is, uh, the idea that James is getting at here is that, is that from our perspective, from our perspectives, the heavens are constantly changing. The, the sun is constantly uh, moving along its course across the sky. The stars are, are continually revolving, rotating. The moon has its phases, Right? 
And so what James is saying is that all those things, all the, the, the heavens, as it were, from our perspective, are in continual motion, and the shadows that they cast on the earth are continually changing. But God is not like that. That's what James is saying. And the connection here seems to be this, that James is connecting one attribute of God with another. He's connecting the generosity of God with the, uh, the unchanging nature of God. The, the technical term is immutability. He's immutable. He cannot change. He's connecting God's generosity with his immutability. And if you think about this, it's, really, it's astounding because our God is one. He's one in essence, one in being. He's not just a, he's not just a, a, a mere sum of all his attributes. He is, he is all that he is, everything that he is, all at once, all at the same time. God is one. That means that every one of God's attributes qualifies every one of his other attributes. And this is what I mean. God is immutable, he's unchanging, and he's generous. What does that mean? It means God is unchangingly generous. God is, we could go on. God is all-powerful. That means God is all-powerfully generous. And so on. God is, James is here saying that God is unchanging. He's single-minded when it comes to his commitment to be generous to his children. There seems to be a contrast here with, with earlier what we talked about in verse 8 of chapter 1 there, where it talks about a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Where, and so whereas we can be double-minded and not wholehearted in what we do, that's impossible of God. God is always 100% single-minded in everything that he does. Single-minded, unchanging in his commitment to be generous to his children. A great example that we see of this um, is in Psalms 102, verse 25 and following. It says this, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. And your years have no end. Verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. And their offspring shall be established before you. So look. There's, all, there's, there's a connection there. Between the last verse and the previous verses. The world will wear out. But God won't. Everything will pass away. But God won't. Nothing else in this world. Can you set your hope in. To be found secure forever. Because everything else will pass away. But if you set your hope in God, because he never changes, he can guarantee your security forever. If you set your hope in the things of this world, certainly hell and high water can come against it. Rust and must, uh, <laughs> rust and moss can destroy. Anything you set your hope on in this world, it will fail you. But if you set your hope in God, he can secure you in a world free from sin where there is no pain or death or dying anymore forever. Why? Because unlike the earth and the created order, his years have no end. And he never changes. 
the unchanging nature of God and the goodness and generosity of God are together. And so what James is saying is to trust in the generous, unchanging nature of God. You see, if you trust it, it'll change you. You believe it, and it'll enable you to be grateful in every circumstance. It'll be enable you to face suffering and hardship with a deep-rooted joy because you believe in a good, trustworthy God. It will enable you to do good, yes, even to those whom uh, will wish ill to you. You can still do good to them. Why? Because you believe in a generous God who is like that, and you want to be a son or daughter of your Father who is in heaven. If you trust in the generous, unchanging God, we can live a life like that. So we trust in the generous, unchanging God, finally, who saved you, who saved us. Trust in the generous, unchanging God who saved you, who saved us. Verse 18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, <clears throat> the, the, the loose flow of thought here seems to be this. There's all kinds of deception in the world, the flesh, the devil. Therefore, we must not be deceived. We must not be deceived concerning the reality of God's unchanging goodness. And if we ever need an example, the ultimate example of God's unchanging goodness to be reminded of it so that we're not deceived, that example is this. He saved us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, it says. That is, that God freely, of his own will, of his own choice, he brought us forth. It's kind of, it's the language of, it's kind of the language of birth, he brought us forth, he says, by the word of truth. Most likely they're referring to the gospel. We are birthed freely by God, the greatest gift that could ever be given. New birth by God as a gift received by him as an act of his sheer and unchanging generosity toward us. Paul kind of has the same thought in Titus chapter 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The greatest act of God's unchanging generosity is the gift of salvation. Free. You don't have to earn it because you can't earn it. A gift, holy, 
accomplished by God through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, resurrection from the dead, so that if he is received in your heart with humility and repentance and faith, accept that he comes in and changes you by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we're saved by the grace, the mercy of God. And this is true of all, true of all believers. Paul is taught in Titus 3 there, he's talking about, he's talking, he's writing to Timothy, and he's speaking of Christians when he says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves by various passions and pleasures. That's who, that's all of us. Nobody's born saved. (laughs) We, it is a gift of God that we receive by faith and it changes us. We were all just fine, so we thought, without God. But he saves us by grace, free, and merited kindness, favor, his generosity. Every good gift, James says, is from above. And to what end did God bring us forth by his own will? James says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does this mean that we as Christians are the first fruits of God's creatures? Well, if you look at the New Testament usage of first fruits uh, concerning believers, what you see is that Christians, we are, we are the first evidences, the first examples of the new created order that Jesus Christ is bringing about. It's amazing if you think about it. The end of all things is God finally and fully restoring the heavens and the earth to the way they were meant to be. In Revelation uh, 21 and 22, it's depicted as the new heavens and the new earth everything made right. But when Jesus came, it did not happen immediately. Remember, in Acts 1, the disciples asked him, is it now that you'll, you'll establish the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not, it's not for you to know the times, seasons, that the Father has appointed. There's a beginning. There's the inception. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven hidden in flour. It's like a seed that is planted that grows. But we are the First fruits of it. Uh, we who have the Holy Spirit of God, we have the first fruits, we have the first fruits of heaven already being born inside us. You see it? Everyone who has been saved by grace. And if you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. You have been changed. You've had your affections changed. You've had your life changed. You'd have your love changed. You are not who you once were, and you're not who you and you're not who you would be if you'd never met God. You are changed. Why is that? Because there's a spirit that dwells inside of you that is working what? Working what? He's working life and love and righteousness inside of you. What is that? That is heaven in you. 
That is the first taste of heaven. It is the first taste in you already of what the glorious end will be like when Jesus eradicates sin forever. But it's already at work in you. You are the first fruits of heaven. Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. See what Paul's saying there? The creation groans to be what? To be made new. The creation is groaning under the weight of sin. Every death, every disease, every hurricane, every tsunami, every tornado, the earth is groaning under the weight of sin. And we, Paul says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly because we hate our sin and we fight our sin. We groan inwardly longing for the day that Paul calls it the adoption as sons. What is that? It's the redemption of our body. We groan for the day when we're made new and you never think another sinful thought again. You'll never fight another temptation again because you can't. You can't be tempted. You can't sin because you've been made perfect like your Savior. In this hope, Paul says, we were saved. So we are the first fruits right now of what God is doing to renew the world. So if you ever forget about the unchanging goodness of God, remember that heaven is already at work in you. That God is is a good and generous God. Trust in the generous and unchanging God who saved you. Trust in Him. And if you haven't trusted in Him, the greatest thing you will ever do is trust in Him and surrender to Him and taste what you were made be who you were made to be. Find a joy and a, and a lasting and indestructible hope because you know that you belong to a good Father who is in heaven, who is generous and unchanging. You can trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, how 